Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. We have a very interesting interview for you um, on this episode. I interviewed Ken Fish. Now, Ken is a very interesting person because not only is Ken highly academic, he has his master's degree um, from Fuller Theological Seminary, he's also currently pursuing his doctorate, but Ken is also very, uh, very heavily involved in what a lot of us would call the more charismatic side of Christianity. In fact, that's what Ken's ministry mainly focuses on, healing, deliverance from uh, from demons, um, miracles, um, that kind of stuff. So it was a very interesting conversation because Ken is... Is very calm, cool, and collected, very knowledgeable of church history and the Bible, and really made some great, I, I would say, arguments for why the gifts of the Spirit are, to, are still relevant today and why God is still healing and how that works. We talked about a lot of different things. Now, keep in mind, this interview was recorded in December, so quite a little bit ago. So I asked Ken um, about the uh, Jericho rally, which was when we saw all these prophets coming out saying that God is going to give Trump a second term. And I got a lot of his thoughts on that, as well as some other things that were very current for that time. Listen, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. At the end, I have Rob and Jordan back on to kind of talk about some of these things. I hope you guys enjoy it. Talk to you next week. Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is great to have you today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I like asking all my guests, why don't you give us the five-minute version of Ken's story, where you come from, how you got to where you are now, and what you're currently doing? Well, let's see. Um, the five-minute story. So I, uh, I was raised in a, in a home that was, uh, I would say, Christian, although my mother was not uh, overly devout during my childhood years. My father died when I was young, and my grandparents had a huge influence on my form- formation. Uh, because they were very, very devout. They were actually converted. Get this, believe this or not. In the early 20th century, they were converted in a tent revival by a circuit-riding preacher on a horse, literally a horseback-riding preacher. Wow. We hear about it, but my grandparents got saved that way, and this was in western Michigan. And as it happens... Uh, that preacher was a disciple of a disciple of Francis Asbury. Wow, unbelievable. And for those who don't know, and many wouldn't, um, Francis Asbury, they actually have a statue of him in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington. He is viewed as one of the most influential people in American history. uh, And he had a lot to do with um, the emergence of what we call the Great Awakening culture, Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't numbered as one of the great awakening preachers, but he was, he was himself, uh, raised up by John Wesley. So, I mean, we're talking, not that, you know, that makes me John Wesley or anything, but it's it just, it's an interesting spiritual heritage. We read about these things if we are of a bent to read 
church history. And sometimes you kind of go, oh, well, okay, it's sort of distant and out there. Yeah. But for me, it's very close in and real. Wow. So anyway, um, that's kind of the, the early, early years. And then uh, because of my grandparents, I would have said all the way along that I was uh, that I was a believer, that I was a Christian, but I had some kind of a an encounter with God when I was uh, 18 years old and I had just finished high school. Um, some would say you weren't saved and you got saved. Some would say you had a, a deeper commitment experience. I've never known exactly how to describe that, hmm. but it was very supernatural and it was a direct encounter with God in which I heard his audible voice. Hmm. Uh, and so that really that really redirected me. Now I was, as I say, I was already, I kind of viewed myself as a Christian. I would have affirmed any of the tenets of the faith. And my, my parents and grandparents all said that I was basically a good kid, but Mm. you know, something changed for sure. And after that I was, I would say ardently, seriously, legitimately and devotedly following Jesus. Mm. Um, so that was that that kind of launched me into college. I went to Princeton University. Wow. And while I was there in the sophomore of my uh, in the excuse me, in the fall of my sophomore year, um, I had another very supernatural experience. I had what is termed an open vision. Um, this is to say the vision that I saw was before my naked eye uh, in broad daylight. And it was as real as well, the vision or the image of me that you're getting on screen right now Hmm. Uh, and it persisted for three days whoa (laughs) so yeah and then at the end it lifted so it was like wow all right um and you know i've i've had a few events in my life that i absolutely know that i 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 know (laughs) we're god Mm. and they they become defining moments for me and that was another one of this this thing that happened to me when i was 18 that was one and then a couple of years later i had this other thing happen and uh <clears throat> and in it the lord uh instructed me to go to seminary and you know people talk about having a calling i would have called this a, a big boot in the butt this was not a calling <laughs> this was a shove and uh, it, because I actually had it in mind, I'd gone to Princeton to study um, uh, quantum physics and to study uh, solid state, you know, how, how quantum physics occurs in solid state uh, matter. And that was kind of where I was going. I was very scientifically oriented. And so to be having these kinds of experiences was um, not the norm for a mm. Princeton physicist. or Yes, engineer. certainly not. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I came out of Princeton and I'm compressing a bit cause I want to honor the five minutes you gave me and I'm nearly out, but, <laughs> all right. uh, but anyway, I ended up getting connected to a man named John Wimber, who was the pastor of a church in Southern California, actually not far from where I'd grown up. And when I first visited the church, I realized, oh, I've been here before, uh, with friends when I was in high school, not huh. a ton, but a few times. And it was like, oh, okay. Um, but then I also went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And at the time, John Wimber was teaching there as an adjunct professor. Um, I became um, a staff member of his uh, as part of my internship experience for my Master of Divinity. And I uh, began ghostwriting for him, among huh. other things. I traveled with him and I you know, learned from him. 
and John Wimber was one of the seminal thinkers as it turn as it pertains to uh, supernatural matters in the 20th century. He wrote a few books which are out of print now. I'm, it's mm. a shame that they are, but they're findable. And uh, so I didn't write the books, but I wrote I wrote a lot of his conferences. I wrote a lot of his sermons and things like that. And I worked with him for about 11 years. And so he became a, a really significant influence on me. And, mm. and I would say, you know, John Wimber more than anybody personifies the rediscovery of the supernatural in Christianity, at least Protestant Christianity mm. um, in America. And so I was lucky to, or, or it was a supernatural setup. You can call it what you like. <laughs> sure. But, but anyway, I, I ended up working with him and, um, he had a lot of influence on my thinking. I've gone further even than I did when I was working with him. But, but I mean, I quote him all the time. He, mm. he was a huge influence on my life. Mm. And so um, anyway, I, I worked with John. I ultimately, though, went, you know, went and had a business career, uh, got an MBA from UCLA, and I was in big uh, Fortune 500 companies for a number mm. of years, like more than 20 Wow, and I uh, and then in about ten years ago, I left all of that and I began doing this thing that we call Orbis Ministries. Um, I founded it under a different name, but now everybody knows us as Orbis Ministries. Okay, and our website is orbisministries.org. Pretty much what we do is um, I travel the world. Uh, COVID has obviously had a crimp on that this year, right? But um, but. Pre-COVID, I was traveling about 280 days a year. A, a light year would be about 240 days. And, wow. Yeah. And I go all over the world, um, multiple countries. I've, I've, uh, I've preached in over, uh, well, at different times over the last 30 years, I've preached in over 60 countries. But, but in the last 10, it's been about 45 hmm. countries. And so um, we, t we show people from Scripture where the supernatural is found. And I'm not just talking about the stories that wow people, but more, how does this really work? What, what does this mean? How, I mean, because most Christians today would say, I've never had supernatural experiences of the kind you're describing. So I, I take yes. people through the storyline. I take them through the, here's how it happened to them. And then we get people started in rediscovering that side of their Christian faith, hmm. such that, um, you know, we now have people all over the world that are, uh, you know, I would say prophesying with great value, which means it's both accurate and edifying. Um, and <laughs> they, they, they may be praying for the sick and seeing them recover from all kinds of crazy conditions. I've seen everything in the Bible uh, at this point, in, in at least one case, in many cases, hundreds of cases. Hmm. healed. Um, we see deliverance from evil spirits, real live, honest to goodness, le legit evil spirits. Sometimes it looks like the exorcist, sometimes not quite so much, <laughs> but we see it all the time. And I get called in to, you know, consult and help people with, you know, issues that they have. Uh, we, we help people get activated in the miraculous. I mean, there's all these things that are in the Bible. And I believe this is just part of where we should be living. Um, because if we believe the Bible, then we should be having experiences like the Bible. In other words, it's a book of examples, not exceptions. Mm, and I think okay. for a lot of people, it is a book of exceptions. Definitely. And, and so with that, I, I kind of adopted as my tagline, it comes from Isaiah chapter 40, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Mm. Except in this case, it's the cities of, well, 
England and America and Canada and Germany and Australia and, you know, fill in another country, but say unto those cities, this is your God, put him on display. And what I find is that when people experience this supernatural side of God, it does something. It's like the penny drops. And for a lot of people, they have these, most, most don't want to talk about them, or if they do, they don't really know even how to talk about them. But for a lot of people, there's a deep, um, like an unsettledness about their faith. On the one hand, they count themselves as Christians, but on the other hand, few people can actually point to something and say, I know that God did that. I, I saw something. I was there. I experienced the reality of God as described in the Bible. And, and when people have that kind of thing, it, it just spins their head around, the penny drops, and they realize, this is the Christianity I've always been looking for. Hmm. Well, I got to be honest, Ken. I've never had someone who has clearly your intellect, but is also this committed to understanding the supernatural. And that kind of excites me because I have questions that I've always wanted to find a guy like you to maybe help me work through because, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life. I grew up very Baptist where, you know, of course the gifts were not a thing. Um, I, I now go to an Assemblies of God church, and even there, they're very conservative in how they practice the gifts. <laughs> yeah, you're giving me the so-so. But, you know, I, I will be honest, like, there always has been a part of me, and I think this is true for a lot of Christians, that are like, you know, like, I mean, like, but what if? Like, what if God can really work this way with miracles and stuff? Because I'll be honest, I, I have never witnessed, you know, um, in the moment, you know, someone getting healed or something like that. But I've always wanted to be open to those things because God is, is God. And I, I see these stories in the Bible. Let, let me start with this question. Why do you think that at least for um, maybe the West, it's really hard to reconcile these like almost split opinions of like, you know, science versus supernatural. They almost seem like they're always at odds with each other. What have you find kind of drives that? And, and what do we do about it? Well, it's a great question and a very important question that we could probably do just an entire show on that. But the, the, a shorter answer is that um, there is a phenomenon within theological thought called scholasticism. And not long after the Reformation, uh, there, there arose a phenomenon called Protestant scholasticism. And it had the effect of... Um, making theological inquiry very heady, whereas theology in the early church, particularly during the patristic period, which is roughly up until the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, um, theology was always viewed as prayed theology. In other words, it was people of deep faith with deep spirituality who were crafting theology. And that's not to say that theologians today don't have, well, some don't have deep spirituality. It depends on which end of the theological spectrum you're on, but, but it would be unfair to characterize all theologians as lacking theological depth and faith. But anyway, um, so theology became very heady, and it's worth noting that, um, you know, Protestantism arose approximately at the same time that we get the, the Enlightenment. It actually preceded it by about a hundred years, but, but then they became coterminous. Yes. And a big part of the Enlightenment um, and, and it's a core tenet of the Enlightenment, is to move toward what we today call the scientific worldview. And with that, we strip out anything that's supernatural as somehow unnecessary. Hmm. And so what happened is, um, and it's fairly, you can actually document this, there are books that have been written on this, 
uh, one of which was written by a man named John Ruthven, R-U-T-H-V-E-N, John Ruthven. And he wrote a book called What's Wrong with Protestant Theology. So mm. he would be a good place to start for people who want to go deeper with this. Um, and he, he was a professor of theology, systematic theology at um, Regent University. He's retired oh, yeah. now. But anyway, um, so what happened was you get the Enlightenment happening alongside of um, Protestant development in thought, and you get this phenomenon called Protestant uh, scholasticism. And it had the net effect, and I could talk about the specific you know, key points, but the net effect of it was yeah. that Christianity in the Protestant world was de-supernaturalized across the board. And so even though, for example, John Wesley, who was definitely living during the period of the Enlightenment, even though he himself had many supernatural experiences prophetically, he raised somebody from the dead, and it's in his journals, it's documented. You never hear people talk about this. It's sort of ignored. I've never heard that. <laughs> you know, these are the ravings of deluded people from another era. I mean, whatever, however it's dismissed. Sure. And then you get guys um, who come along like B.B. Uh, Warfield and A.A. Hodge coming out of the Princeton School of Theology. And just side note here, when we say the Princeton School, we mean Princeton Theological Seminary, not Princeton University. Mm. They're across the street from one another, but they're not related. The only thing they have in common is the name Princeton oh. because they are in Princeton, New Jersey. Good to know. That's, I'm in that area. so. Okay. So um, anyway, uh, so you know, guys like um, Hodge and Warfield, they seize the high ground, and particularly within any kind of reformed school of thought, because coming out of Princeton Seminary, they would have been Presbyterians. Mm. Um, the, the, the entire corpus of supernaturalism essentially vanishes from Christian discourse. And you see, you see parts of it lingering in, for example, um, pieces of Methodism, but mostly it's gone from Methodism. Mm. And then um, you, know, you, get the, you get the Azusa Street outpouring, mm -hmm that comes in 1906 and it lasts till 1909. And out of Azusa Street, you get your denomination, the Assemblies of God, you get yep. the Nazarenes who went in a holiness direction rather than a signs and wonders direction. And you get some other moves of God, but one of them, lo and behold, is the Foursquare denomination uh, founded by Amy Semple McPherson. And she really got her start in the 1920s. So, you know, approximately 15 years after Azusa Street had ended. But you know, her church is, is less than a mile, or maybe two, I don't want to exaggerate, less than two miles from where the Azusa Street mission was. Hmm. And it's still there to this day. And she had thousands and thousands and thousands of healings. I mean, her ministry, the Foursquare Gospel, the reason it's called the Foursquare is Jesus Christ the Savior, Jesus Christ the Healer. Uh, Jesus Christ, the baptizer in the Holy Ghost, and Jesus Christ, the soon-and-coming king. Those were the four tenets of Fort Squareism, and that's what she preached everywhere. And there's plenty of photographic evidence from the 1920s and even movies of, you know, uh, cars pulling up, ambulances pulling up at her services so that she could pray for those sick people. And literally thousands of people were healed under her ministry. But after she died... Um, a new generation arose and they were drawing on a lot of that same theological tradition that I was just describing. Mm. And so today, most of the four square is devoid of signs and wonders, even though it was founded on signs and wonders only a century ago. Hmm. 
Well, let me ask you this. It might be good to get a baseline. When we say supernatural, are we just, re, re, are we just saying that, that whenever God does something miraculous, is that what, what, what we mean? Or just a belief in, in an invisible God? Like, how do you define supernatural? Because I feel like for some people, that can just mean different things to different people, depending on what we're talking about. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question, too. It's always good to define your terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can talk about <clears throat> what I might term normal life. And most of us would have some common experience of normal life. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know what that means. You know, cars don't run without gas. Right. Um, we know where babies come from. A man and a woman come together and a baby is born out of that. Right. Um, so the idea that a virgin would get pregnant from what an angel told her she's going to be overshadowed by the what the Holy spirit, Mm. does that make God a pervert or does that mean, and what is this, what does this even mean? Right? Exactly. Things like the virgin birth, um, things like cars running without gas, people being healed supernaturally raised up from deathbeds or having missing body parts restored, things like that. That's supernatural. Supernatural could be things that are miraculous, water turning to wine, people walking on water. And at least in my mind, when I Mm. think in, teach on healing and miracles. There are miracles of healing. That's where something that's missing in the body might be recreated. Somebody, you know, grows a a body part and I've seen it happen Hmm. on the other, or something dematerializes like tumors that literally just vanish in prayer. That would be a miraculous healing. Hmm. But most of the time when we mean uh, healing, we're talking about an acceleration of a natural process. Um, perhaps mingled with some of these other factors. When I talk about straight line miracles, I'm talking about rebuking the weather and seeing it change as Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias at one time. Or we talk about water turning to wine, or we talk about things appearing out of nowhere, manna coming from heaven. Uh, We talk about walking on water, splitting the Red Sea. These are all dealing more with natural phenomena rather than specifically healing. So miracles is the superset. Uh, healing is, is some sort of thing unto itself. And then there's an overlap. If you think of a Venn diagram, mm-hmm. there's an overlap of miracles of healing where something truly unusual has to happen. So I'm, I'm thinking right at this moment of a woman I prayed for who had had melanoma in her uh, retina of her eye. Mm-hmm. And so um, she wanted prayer for her blindness because in treating her, the doctors had surgically severed her optic nerve on purpose, and they had physically removed a big part of the retina in the back of the eye. They left a little bit on the edge. Um, and they had then used radiation to kill any remaining uh, cancerous cells in the eye. And just to be clear, because I know how the Western mind works, yes, this occurred in a first world country. It wasn't the USA, it was in Australia but they have very good first class, first world Western medicine. Hmm. So um, anyway, this all happened in her eye and she was left, as you would expect, fully blind in the eye because the, the optic nerve had been surgically severed and the retina had been removed and then radiation had killed what was left of the few remaining retinal cells. Right. So she was completely and fully blind in that eye. And it's kind of a longer story and I want to, I mean, we can unpack it if you'd like, but I'll, the summary, the summary event is that um, in about an hour of prayer, she got her vision back. 
such that she was able to see initially black and white, then in color, and then she had some limitation on her lateral view or what we call peripheral view. So she was kind of seeing in a tunnel, but she could see, and we verified this by covering the right eye and having her read from a book wow. and then read things on the wall. She could in fact see, but then um, over about a two more hours, so net, net time elapsed about three hours, she got all of her peripheral vision back and was able to function normally once again. Now that is a miracle of healing because we know that there's been destruction uh, or removal in either case right. of body parts that are necessary for the proper functioning of that system of the body. Okay. I want to focus on two things, maybe in our time that we have together on, on healing and on prophecy. We can start with healing first. Yeah, so sure. if, if you can just humor me, I'm going to just ask the questions that I think I, I have and that I, people have asked me that I just don't have answers to. Um, you know, when it comes to things like healing, I mean, is this, is, is this a gift that God gives only certain people? Is this available to everyone? Like, how does this, the, the healing idea work? I've heard it been told as you need to have enough faith. If, it doesn't, if God doesn't heal, you know, it wasn't enough, enough faith to make it happen. But it sounds like you really obviously are, are really well-versed and studied on this issue. So when it comes to that kind of idea of like me, Tim, praying for someone to heal them, and then it doesn't happen, what do I do with that? Yeah, so I think there's been, this is actually part of the very phenomenon we were talking about, the scholasticism. Mm. Um, I think that even within charismatic or Pentecostal Christianity, mm. um, particularly in the last, mm, I'll say since the 1950s, but, but maybe, maybe if we foreshorten it just a touch and say since the 70s, it's unquestionable since the 70s, mm. but you may be able to trace it back into the 50s. Um, but anyway, so, you know, that gives us uh, something around, you know, 50 to 70 years of time. Yeah. Something has happened and that is an, an, an increasing emphasis on what I call the noetic dimension of Christianity versus the numinous dimension of Christianity. Now I need to unpack these terms. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> so, noetic comes from the Greek term nous or nous. It's spelled in Greek N-O-U-S and N-O-U-S is the mind. And so when we talk about noetic Christianity, never mind the scholastic aspects that I've talked about in, you know, proper academic theology, which is a thing for sure. I wouldn't have mm -hmm. said it if I didn't believe it. Right. But when we, when we start talking about noetic Christianity, it becomes all about propositional faith and the fact that I need to believe in a certain way. And so the way that gets expressed most commonly is you don't have enough faith. Right. And so with that, the, re the behavior you observe in people is, I confess, I confess, Jesus died on the cross for my healing, and I believe that God is a healing God. And so I'm, I'm going to hold fast to this until I see the healing manifest. Exactly. That, that kind of language. I mean, again, different people might say it slightly differently, but, but that's basically the gist of it. Right. And so it's, um, it's fairly widespread. And many places that I go, people say, well, you know, I believe, I believe, I believe. And they'll even almost wrote, re repeat that kind of phrasing. Yeah. That's all noetic Christianity. And I don't think that that's really the way God heals most of the time. Hmm. There, ha there are some instances in scripture where, for example, Jesus says, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Right. But if we understand that faith is not so much a confessional thing i.e. noetic, but rather a confidence, a trust, 
in God. Then when Jesus says, go in faith or go in peace, your faith has healed you. What he's really saying is you came confident that God was going to do something and you found that something because God met that confidence. God never lets his own people down when they have that, uh, that groundedness. Hmm. And I think the way we teach Christianity in a lot of quarters today is quite noetic. It's quite propositional. Believe these few things and you will be fine. Believe Jesus rose from the dead and you will be saved. Right. And, and on the one hand, that, that part is right. If you believe that Christ rose from the dead, then we are born again and we have the assurance of eternal life. I absolutely believe that. Hmm. But I, I think it's meant to be more than mental assent. It's hmm. meant to be something where we have some sort of encounter with God. And when I, was, when I was actually studying at Fuller Seminary, one of my professors used to say that a true and authentic conversion consists of three parts. And so the first part is what, and it doesn't have to happen in this order, but, but they all, have, all three have to be present. So the first part is the truth encounter. They hear the truth and somehow it, it rings true to them and they say, I, I, okay, sure. All right, I, I believe Jesus is the son of God, okay. Mm -hmm. Then the second thing that has to happen is there is a call to commitment. You're going to realign your life with this truth that you now believe. Right. And the third part and the part that is missing in so much of modern Christianity is the power encounter. You actually encounter the dynamic of God's spirit who releases the power of the living God upon them. And so when we see people born again, some people just pray and it seems very passive. And a lot of times those people drift in their faith after the fact. Other people have some dramatic encounter with God. It might be quite emotional. Other times it may not be so emotional, but it's filled with, I mean, racking power going through their bodies. Finney, in his journals on le uh, lectures on revival, uh, Charles Finney, mm. he talks about how he had this experience where power came over his body and he begged God to stop it. He thought he would die from it. And so that's a power encounter. And for mm. a true and authentic conversion to happen, you need all three. Most people in modern Christianity are having at most one, at most two, and sometimes only one. They may on, sometimes only have a truth encounter. This is the truth, you should believe it. Sometimes we actually summon people to believe it and to follow him and to live as disciples. But there are very few places where power comes. But here's what Paul says about this. Paul the apostle, the apostle of grace, hmm. says 1 Corinthians 2 verses 4 and 5, my message and my preaching did not come with wise words, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power in order that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Hmm. So Paul preached the truth. He summoned men to repent and he said power backed his ministry. And he even doubled down on that. First Corinthians 4.20, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in words and in talk, but in power. And in much of the modern church, we're talking, 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 talking. Mm. And we're believing, 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 believing. We're highly noetic, but where's the power? And mm. so I started out by saying uh, noetic and numinous. I believe that most healings that are authentic, they come about through the, through the numinous power of God, the dynamic, active power of God, whereby the power of the living God mediated by the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
when we pray in the name of Jesus to the Father, it's a highly Trinitarian activity, the power of the Holy Spirit, the numinous power comes down, and with that, bodies are changed. Healing occurs. By the way, this is pretty much the same way miracles happen. There is a numinous dynamic to it, and so I'm constantly trying to move people out of the noetic and into mm. the numinous. And yet very few churches even talk about this, and of course I'm using heady you know, $64 words, but <laughs> if we're going to be, if we're going to be accurate about this, if we're yes. really going to help people understand how come this isn't my experience, I just want to say it this way. As a Christian, you've been ripped off. Hmm. You've been taught a powerless Christianity. Hmm. And yet the Christianity of the apostles and of the New Testament is a power filled Christianity because Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. And it's not just power to, to, you know, like avoid sin. That's in it for sure. I'm not at all denying right. that or, or taking it away. Right. I'm just saying we've been told it's this much and it's actually this much. Yeah. And so when we talk about power, what we're talking about is the very thing that Jesus was functioning in. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that he received some sort of touch from the Spirit in the Jordan River. This is in Luke 3, 21 and 22. And so he was... He had, he had this initial uh, touch of the Spirit. But then Luke 4.1 goes on to say that when he came out of the river, so it wasn't but moments later, hmm. and the Jordan River at that place is only maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 feet wide. It's not, it's not a super wide river where the baptismal site was. Hmm. It's just north of the mouth of the Dead Sea. Um, when he comes out of the river, you know, mere yards away or meters away, uh, it says he was now filled with the Spirit. And then when he'd finished his temptations in the wilderness, Luke 4.14 says he came back to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So it's that exact numinous dimension that Jesus functioned in that made his ministry so, so effective. Hmm. And I believe any Christian can have that numinous dimension in his or her life. This is precisely the reason we need the baptism in the Holy Spirit hmm. and why Jesus said, remain in Jerusalem until you've received power from on, on high. And I note with that, that although one, the, the thing that was noteworthy uh, in that encounter with the Spirit of God was that they spoke in other languages, yeah. they also prophesied. So I'm not stuck on other languages, even though the Assemblies of God is stuck on other languages. Mm -hmm. I'm stuck on the manifestations of the Spirit of both languages and prophecy, and I'm stuck on this one metric. Is there power being evidenced in your life or ministry? If not, you may not have actually received the baptism in the Spirit. You may be having a false baptism in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So I want to give you a chance to maybe uh, clarify something for our listeners, because I, I can imagine some people... Um, are asking themselves, well, are you saying that like, if I haven't had this power moment, I'm not really saved, not really a Christian? I've heard some people are kind of back and forth on this. You know, what, what, what is your view on that? Because frankly, I mean, I'll, I'm thinking about all, all my Baptist friends <laughs> that I grew up with, you know, right. who wouldn't even believe this, but are right. still devoted Jesus followers, are still loving the poor, etc. You know, what, what do you do with that? Yeah, so I think the answer to that is found in Scripture. Mm -hmm. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, period. Mm. Full stop, carriage return. Okay, yeah. so we've answered that question. All they have to do is believe and confess that he was raised from the dead and they will mm. be saved. But when that happens, many times people have something. 
it, it may be as minor and simple as I felt fluttering in my chest or in my stomach, or I teared up a little bit. Well, what's happening is there is some sort of touch from God that, that's occurring. And if you want to go back to what I was just talking about from Luke, this would be the, this would be the analogy, the analog to Jesus's experience in Luke 3, 20 and 21. But he goes on to have subsequent experiences with the Spirit in Luke 4, 1 and Luke 4, 14. And so I think that for most of us, we could stand, shall we say, get our tank filled. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, th- I got to be honest. What you're saying is really making me think even as we have this interview because um, there's just a lot here. There's a lot of things I've never, I never heard explained this way. A lot of things I never, even those two terms you use, I've never heard those two terms ever being used. And I've been in church my entire life and I'm pretty committed to it. I run a podcast to have these conversations, you know? So I'm doing moral work than probably even the average Joe. And I'm still yeah. like, wow, there's so much to process here. Um, let's, let's continue this train for a second. And I, I didn't mention this, but let's talk about speaking in tongues. That that's another really big one. I think for a lot of people, you know, the AG is very big on that. A lot of Baptists, of course, that conservative side is not, I mean, what, is, you know, I, I think about how Paul, I, I believe in Corinthians talks about how, if someone's going to speak in tongues, it has to be an interpreter. How do you, what do you explain tongues to be? You know, um, is it a heavenly language? You know, give us a kind of a breakdown on, on, on this topic. Well, the way I understand Uh, what we call tongues is, first of all, let's define terms again. Hmm. So tongues, that exact phrasing. Now, I don't mean this. Right, your physical tongue. Yeah. Um, So that exact phraseology of tongues comes to us from the King James Bible. Hmm. That's how it was rendered into English. And actually, it it is preceded by some of the earlier English translations like the Tyndale Bible and the Coverdale Bible. But the King James Bible rested on that tradition and was trying to you know, encapsulate it. The King James Bible was translated in 1611. So that's, well, we're almost at the end of 2020 here. So 409 years ago, soon it'll be 410 years ago. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's not quite half a millennium old, but it's, it's an older translation. For its time, it was amazingly good. And, and it's still actually quite good. It's just that it was, it was translated into the language of, of the day, in the, into King James Day. That's why it's called the King James Bible. He authorized it to be done. And um, the King James Bible uses a lot of turns of phrase that are no longer in use. They are out of date. And so there's a lot of these and thys and thous in there, and that confuses people, although eventually people kind of get past that one. But, you know, you have odd phrasing. Uh, here's one verse out of the book of Job. Is there flavor in the slime of a purslane? <laughs> What? What is that? I mean, I guess you could get out your online dictionary and look up what all that is, but, and there's a lot of that sort of thing. And so the King James Bible is quite confusing to people as well. And it uses the word tongues to refer to languages. Mm. And so when we talk about the gift of tongues, what we really mean is the gift of languages. And so John Wesley or excuse me, Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother, who helped him in that great revival that the Wesleys led, there was a hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. It doesn't mean I want a thousand of this piece of flesh. Mm. It means I want a thousand languages to sing the praise of my Redeemer. Ah. And so we need to understand that when we're talking about tongues, we really mean languages. And so most of the time when I'm teaching, unless I slip up, 
because I grew up hearing, you know, the term gift of tongues. Sure. I say the gift of languages. And with mm -hmm. that, I just want to tell you, I have had meetings where the Holy Spirit has fallen in the meeting and people have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, I'm thinking of one meeting where one woman over here on my left, she began speaking in a, in a language that she didn't recognize. It was not her usual tongue. She began speaking in a language and the guy behind her leaned forward and said, where did you learn to speak that language? You're speaking fluent Flemish from my village in Belgium. Nobody outside of my village speaks that dialect of Flemish. Hmm. And then over here at the same time, there was another guy who had a similar experience, except the person behind him leaned forward and said, where did you learn to speak that? You're speaking Okinawan Japanese, not Kansei, the language of the Japanese mainland but the language of Okinawa, you're speaking fluent Kansei. I'm going to translate for you what you're saying because I speak that language and I know what you're saying. There's no gift in, in play here. Hmm. And I've had that happen at different times. One time I was in Australia and I was praying over somebody that, you know, was part of a leadership team. The yeah. spirit of God came upon her. Now note that all three of these are, are uh, numinous experiences, hmm. right? So the spirit of God came on this woman. She was a worship leader and so she fell to the ground under the, under the power of God's spirit. And as she fell to the ground, I went down, you know, above her. I, I want to make sure this doesn't sound weird. But I, I, went, <laughs> right. I, I knelt down over her and I continued to pray over her. Yeah. And, uh, and I was speaking in another language, in a tongue. Hmm. So as I was doing that, um, you know, I didn't have any sense at all of what I was saying. I was right. just praying. And I would have said, to answer part of the question you asked, I would have said I was praying to God. So a, a language that is being spoken between the prayer and God doesn't necessarily need interpretation. A language that is given out over a room, that needs interpretation mm. because functionally it's, it's akin to prophecy. Gotcha. So anyway, she falls to the ground. I'm praying over her in this language. And here's what I knew about her because I'd been told in the natural by the people there. There was nothing supernatural about this piece of information. I knew that she came from Lebanon. I knew that she came from a Druze village in Lebanon. And the Druze are a very unusual uh, group of people. Anyway, they have some very strange ideas um, and they're very secretive and they keep to themselves. Hmm. So she'd been raised as a Druze. She had later left Lebanon, moved to Melbourne, Australia, uh, had gone to the American school and was now living as an Australian national within Australia. And so her English was my English. She didn't, she didn't have an Aussie accent, Mike. <laughs> okay. okay. So she, so she's, she's basically functioning in three different wow. uh, language groups, right? She's got her own and, and she got her own from Lebanon. She's got mine that she learned in the American school. And then she's existing in an Australian society where, right. It's Australian English that's spoken. And although it's largely the same, there are some different turns of phrase, some dialectical differences. And again, the accenting is, is significantly different. Definitely. Okay, so we finish the meeting and I go home and I'm getting ready for bed and my cell phone rings and it's the pastor of the church. And I knew this guy pretty well. And he mm. goes, hey, um, Ken, you remember the worship leader that you prayed over? And I said, yeah, the one from Lebanon. He says, yeah. And uh, he goes, she just called me and she wanted to know, where did you learn to speak Arabic? And I said, I don't speak Arabic. I know maybe five words in Arabic. And, you know, Allah, Inshallah, 
Alan Wusalan. I might have just used up my entire vocabulary, <laughs> but, but if, if I haven't, I'm close. Yeah. But I, I absolutely do not speak Arabic. And he said, well, she said you gave her a lengthy message in fluent Arabic in the dialect that was spoken among her Druze tribe. And so when when we speak of of, uh, tongues or the gift of languages, here's what I think happened. Again, you're from an Assembly of God tradition. It's a big deal in most Pentecostal circles. Mm -hmm. I think at Azusa Street, where all of these denominations arose, um, or or shortly thereafter, uh, I think what happened was a lot of people were encountering the direct, numinous power of God, and they were speaking in other languages. And there were people coming from all over the world. They knew that they knew that these were real languages. And it was so exciting. They went, wow, this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes, just as in Acts chapter 2. Look mm. at that. Mm. But then, um, as, as they say in Pentecostal circles, as the glory lifted, <laughs> yes, yes, right, as, uh, as the, the, the phenomenon of people being filled with the Spirit in that way became somewhat less pronounced, uh, there was this thing of, we got to keep it going. And John Wimber, here I go quoting my, you know, my mentor. Mm. John Wimber used to say that in many Pentecostal circles, there's a need to, you think of an old Model A or Model T Ford, the way you got it started was you didn't have an electric starter motor where you just stuck the key in and turned it. You'd right. go around to the front of the car and you'd turn the yeah. crank. Yep, that's John right. Wimber used to say that for a lot of Pentecostals, the, you know, the engine stopped a long time ago and now they're just turning the crank, trying to make it happen. Huh. And so... You know, I, when I was in, at Princeton, I was involved with a Pentecostal group, an Assembly of God group, and uh, I got a lot from them. I, I, I owe a great debt of gratitude to the Pentecostals and to what I learned during my period of time with the Assembly of God. I, I love that denomination. But, mm. um, but what I did see was there was oftentimes people who I might say, you know, fake it till you make it. Yeah. And so there might be some who think that they've received tongues, but they don't actually have the gift of tongues. They, they have something that maybe sounds like tongues, mm. but it's not being born of the spirit. It's not erupting out of the innermost being, and it's not being birthed by the living spirit of God. Now, God ultimately is the one to judge this, not me, but I've seen right. enough of the phenomenon where people come and they say, man, whatever that was, they hit me. That wasn't what I had before. Mm. And so when I described these two people in that meeting, by the way, that meeting was a meeting of Presbyterians. <laughs> and, wow. uh, and there were around 300 people in that meeting hmm. and there was one man who approached the pulpit uh he'd been at the back i'd seen him kind of leaning up against the wall while i was preaching and he approached the pulpit he grabs a hold of the pulpit like this and he says i'm an engineer i don't even believe in this stuff and you have me speaking in tongues and, blah, 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 and boom he falls over <laughs> under the numinous power of god wow so in that meeting is the one where the woman was speaking Flemish and the other one was speaking Okinawan Japanese. And both of them reported that they felt something come over their body, which was the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and this is why they were speaking in a, in a tongue, in a language, unlike any that they had ever spoken in before. Hmm. Wow. Um, lot to digest. Yeah, it, it makes sense what, uh, what you're saying in, uh, when you mentioned kind of like the, uh, the analogy of uh, turning the crank over and over again. I remember when I was, um, let's see, I think I was 16 at the time. I was playing for this, this youth group um, that wasn't from my church. They had a live band and I was playing drums there. So I was like, yeah, I'm in. 
And, uh, you know, they, they had us, they were charismatic and they had a service where they had all the kids speak in tongues to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And even then I remember thinking like, wow, I feel like I, if I don't do it, they're not going to leave me alone. So I guess I'll just kind of fake it till I make it. Um, and I think that's why, you know, I'm sure you know, that you're aware that we have a crisis in the American church of, of people leaving, especially young people exiting. And I think part of this is because they have seen so much fake it till we make it um, instead of the real deal. And they left very jaded and skeptic because, you know, they've been either hurt or feel like they've been deceived. So um, I think those are really good words that you're saying. And it's definitely the way that you phrase things and how you explain things is in a way that, that I think sheds new light that maybe a lot of us haven't heard it explained like this before, you know, yeah, even for people yeah. who maybe are like, I don't believe it. Maybe hopefully now they're thinking, well, you know, I, I need to, I need to look into this because I, I haven't heard it explained this way. Um, before I, I let you go, I want to hit the big one. And this one I've, I've been saving up. This is the grand finale for me. Um, let's drum talk. Roll. Yeah. Drum roll, please. Let's talk prophecy. And I'm <laughs> going to, I'm going to lay out my case real quick. Um, I will be very honest, Ken. It has been very discouraging seeing, and I'm using quotation marks, prophets on TV and on TBN and on YouTube um, saying that God told them, you know, that Trump's going to win the election. And then as it turns out, he's not going to, they, they just get further and further down this path of like sounding crazier and crazier. Um, and for me, it feels like a lot of the, prof the prophecy, again, using quotation marks, that I see is more like faux fortune telling and not really like prophecy i mean what is your take on this i i, I can only imagine i mean if, if this infuriates me and this isn't even like my main world and i'm watching it and i'm frustrated like are you kidding me even i know this is bogus i mean are you like losing your mind seeing this happen because these people are claiming to represent god they're claiming to represent jesus and people who aren't believers are laughing i mean they're they're, they're they think it's an absolute joke and honestly, I can't blame them. You know, when you have so and so on a on a on a, on a you know a platform yelling angels from Africa and chanting, you're like, what is going on in the world? Can help me out. What is going on? And give me your professional opinion. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> Take your time. This is the big one. <laughs> All right. Well. So let's go back to something we, we've been talking about, which is the noetic and the numinous. And, and really what, what constitutes an authentic supernatural experience? So <clears throat> I think there are people who have valid gifts of prophecy. I've been around those people. I've functioned in that gift. Um, some people call me a prophet. I'm never sure if I think it's warranted, but uh, because I think, I think there's a certain consistency of, uh, of expression of that gift that should go with somebody actually being a prophet. But, but let's be clear about something. In the New Testament, the gift of prophet, as well as the gift of prophecy, are both listed as valid gifts for the now. And again, because of our uh, noetic orientation, um, and maybe some people who have some knowledge of a group called the Montanists back in the second century AD, um, I would say that in most kind of more conservative or evangelical or less charismatic, charismatic groups, uh, the gift of prophecy and the operation of that, of that function are not widely practiced and are deeply, deeply suspect. Hmm. So, um, 
this is this is a combination of I've never experienced it, so I don't believe it, mm-hmm. um, and cu- coupled with perhaps some theological bias. And then you you know you see people like you've described, and many of them don't pass the credibility test, exactly. and, and that's a shame. Right. And so you know I think we can all agree that throughout the history of religion, and by the way, not only the Christian religion, but Judaism, Hinduism, Islam. I mean, I've studied comparative religion quite heavily. I'm quite fluent in the world's religions. Hmm. Um, I, there, there's a lot of uh, hucksterism that goes on within yes. religious circles. Yep. And so, all right, now that we've stipulated to that, though, is there any of it that's valid? And I would say, yes, some of it is, in fact, valid. Hmm. And so we're talking about Christian prophecy. And uh, I've, I've myself seen a lot of it. I've given a lot of words to people that have been profound and life-changing that have come to pass. Um, and there are some people who, however they got there, have come by the appellation of prophet. Some of it, they gave themselves the title and just kind of hung out a shingle and started doing it. Um, this wouldn't be that different from Madam So-and-so who has the psychic shop down exactly. on the corner. Exactly. Yep. Miss Cleo, the tarot card lady. Right. Exactly. So uh, it, could be, it could be that. It could be that within that person's faith community, once upon a time, people recognized, yeah, you know, when so-and-so gives words, I mean, this, this is really legit. I mean, it happens and right. God's in it. And, and they know because they've seen it happen enough that they recognize them. And then over time, that person, you know, whereas some people have a call to preach or teach or whatever, you know, go work with the poor, uh, some people are called to prophesy. I mean, this happened to Amos, the prophet in the Old Testament. He said that he was a keeper of sycamore fig trees and he was a tender of sheep. And the Lord took him from doing it and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. So he left Judah, crossed the you know, boundary line between those two nations after the split in the monarchy and begins prophesying in uh, Samaria in, in the area around this, the town or city of Bethel. And uh, ultimately he gets rebuked for it and told to go home. Hmm. But but, you know, he, he had something that was valid and legitimate that, that had come about and had grown over time, apparently. So some people, the, the gift grows within them and they ultimately become that. And then there are some people who have what I would consider dramatic um, calling experiences that somehow invest them directly into um, this role of prophet. And there have been quite a few of them uh, that if you, if you study the history of modern prophecy, some are in Africa, but not all are. Let me tell you, there's a bunch of them in the United States. And they have true and authentic gifts where they had, you know, things that sound like they came straight out of the book of Ezekiel or Isaiah in the temple, chapter six. Hmm. Um, and they function in really amazing ways. So we have to be a little bit, um, we have to be a little bit discriminating in how we parse this out and I can tell you that, yeah, there are people who function in this way. Now, let's go to where you were asking about the election. One of the big challenges in prophesying well, and I, I, it, it just happens that tonight I'm giving a webinar for my students who are in my online school hmm. in, in the class that we term Prophecy 103. They've already had two classes in hmm. prophecy, and now they're in this third class. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be addressing this um, 
probably in more depth than we're doing here, but notwithstanding, uh, I'm going to be addressing this tonight with them. But one of the things that I tell them is you have to be clear about when you are getting revelation from God. And there are a lot of people who make it up. Mm. They aren't actually getting revelation from God, but they just say things. And the, uh, the prophet Jeremiah most particularly calls this out in his book. Um, I would point anyone who's listening to this and who wants to look into this themselves at Jeremiah chapter seven, starting in verse eight down to verse 20. There are other places in the book of Jeremiah where he does it, but that one is like right there. Hmm. Jeremiah says that there are prophets here in Jerusalem and they're prophesying right alongside of him. Hmm. Now, Jeremiah is an authentic prophet of the Lord. He'd had a calling from God and he says that now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you and I called you to be a prophet to the nations. So the sphere of Jeremiah's influence is not just national. It's not just local. It's international. You are a prophet to the nations. You're going to mm. speak to more than Judah. Mm. And yet at the time of Jeremiah, Jerusalem comes under siege from the Babylonian army mm. and ultimately falls to the Babylonian army. And the Jews are enslaved and taken away and the temple is destroyed. And well, that's the end of Judaism until the rebuilding under Zerubbabel and, you know, the return that Ezra authorized, excuse me, not right. Ezra that Cyrus authorized, yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, about roughly 140 years later. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, um, so what are we to do with this? Well, Jeremiah is a true and authentic prophet of the Lord. That's why his book is in the Bible, <laughs> and the other guys aren't. Right. Now, that leads to a whole methodological question of well, how do we determine who who's, should be in and who shouldn't be? That's way too big of a question for right now. But, yep. But I just want everyone to know, I recognize this is an important question mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed somewhere at some point. But here's what we know. Those who were doing this and were um, assessing Jeremiah's prophecy deemed it to be worthy of inscripturation because it was so good and so right and so on the mark that they said, yeah, yeah, Jeremiah's legit. Okay. Right. But during Jeremiah's time in Jeremiah 7, he says, you know, all these other prophets, they are prophesying out of their own imaginations. Hmm. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase because it tells you, number one, that 2,500 years ago, people understood that there was something called the imagination. And <laughs> right. the imagination can be a fertile ground. It can actually be the place that new inventions come from. Thomas Edison had an imagination of a, of a light that wouldn't go out readily, wouldn't burn down like a candle would, and he came up with a light bulb. The imagination can be very powerful. But the thing about imagination is until it becomes somehow enfleshed, it's not actually real. Hmm. So Jeremiah says these guys are prophesying out of their own minds. They're prophesying imaginations. It's what they want, not what, not what God has said. Yeah. And so there are people today who name themselves as prophets, but they prophesy out of their own imaginations. That is, in fact, a risk. I don't like it. I don't mm. like to admit it, but, but it's true. And so we need to admit it yeah. because we were called to be lovers of the truth. Right. <clears throat> now, the other phenomenon that goes right alongside of this is it's not just what people are dreaming up, but there's this other thing that can happen. And I got, I get this idea from the writings of St. Ignatius Loyola, the, uh, the founder of the Jesuit order. And hopefully that won't stumble people. I know there's a lot of people who have issues with the Jesuits, but <laughs> But St. Ignatius was a holy man. He was a good man. 
the Jesuit order later became corrupted because look, everything becomes corrupted. It's the nature of fallen humanity. Hmm. Um, so I'm not differentially uh, thinking that the Jesuits are worse than say, oh, all that's going on in the Episcopal Church today in America, hmm. just to pick something. Right. Um, but but St. Ignatius was a good man, and you can read his, his biography, his autobiography, of how he was converted from being a wealthy Spanish soldier and how he had an encounter with God and you know, gave up all of his money and his military ex- escapades and the rest of it. And you know, he went on to become the founder of the Jesuits. But one of the things that Ignatius talks about in his book, The Spiritual Exercises, is a concept that I've kind of redubbed for modern consumption. I call it spiritual neutrality. Hmm. And in spiritual neutrality, assuming that you're hearing from God at all, you have to be willing and able, willing and able, to, um, to delineate or discriminate between your own will and what God wants. Hmm. And many times people have strong opinions about things. They have desires that they want to see happen. And that, as it were, clouds the revelation and no longer is it accurate. Here's an example. You are a single guy and you meet a pretty girl and you <laughs> think, man, this is the one. And you start praying, God, should I marry her? It's nearly impossible to hear God clearly on a question like that for yourself because your emotions are so wrapped up in it. I will neither confirm or deny I've ever done that. (laughs) Everybody has, right? Yeah. Or or here's another one. You get a job offer and it looks like it's more money and you're like, well, it's a better title. Surely God wants me to have this. I I should do this, right? Mm. Well, is it God or is it not? And it might be God. It might not be God. It could be a trap. I took one of those when I was in my business career and it was a trap. And you know what? Deep down here, way down here, you can't even see my hand on the screen. Um, I had this pit in my stomach. I knew this wasn't right. Mm. But on the surface, it looked right. And I, it was so much more money and it was a great title and the trajectory was going to be awesome. And mm. So I went for it. And I mean, I'd been in that job four days and I knew, oh my God, what have I done? Mm. So this thing of spiritual neutrality is a major, major thing. And so what ends up happening is people find it, if they have strong opinions about things, they find it nearly impossible to be spiritually neutral. Mm. And so where this takes them is this. Um, I'm going to illustrate it by giving an example from the Bible. Jesus comes down Uh, from the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Hmm. And Peter had, just prior to the Mount of Transfiguration, rebuked him for saying, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and they will crucify him. And Peter rebukes him, and Jesus says, "Um, get behind me, Satan, Hmm. for you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Hmm. Now, this is the same Peter, by the way, who had just moments before given the given the articulation that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So the same guy who was operating in revelation a moment before is now operating and speaking out of the mouth of Satan or the flesh or something, but certainly not the spirit of God. Right. Why? Because of his sentiments, because of his opinion, because of his mind. He has a preconceived notion and people can get opinions in their mind. They can also have emotional attachments that draw them one way or another. 
Now that's matters of the heart and it's a whole matter of is she the one or is she not the one? Hmm. But, but in all of this, our ability to, to articulate on behalf of the Lord could be compromised. It's not always compromised because a truly disciplined prophet can actually separate what he or she wants from what the mind of the Lord is and say, I'm going to set what I want aside and I'm going to go after what, what God says even at the risk of it being unpopular. Right. And so here's where we see that played out in Scripture. Jesus goes down to Jerusalem, and he knows what's coming. And he goes to Gethsemane, and he kneels down to pray, and he was so in agony over it, he's sweating blood. Mm-hmm. And in this, he says, Father, if there is a way for this to pass from me, let it pass from me. I don't want to drink this cup. Did Jesus have an opinion? Absolutely. Did he want to get away from it? Absolutely. He's begging his father, please, father, please, anything but this. And then he comes to the point of spiritual neutrality. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Hmm. And when he gets up from kneeling in Gethsemane, he says, let's go because my accuser is coming. And with that, Judas appears. Now, Jesus could have gotten out of it. He could have run away. He could have called for 10 legions of angels, he says. Hmm. But he didn't do it. Why? Because he was spiritually neutral and he had the will and mind of God ahead of his own. And in that, because he was a, Jesus was many things. And one thing he was, was a prophet. Um, Jesus was a disciplined prophet and his, he kept, you know, the scripture says that the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. He kept his own spirit under governance in order that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity would have the supremacy. And in that, he yielded to it, and thus he went to his death. Hmm. Now, let's take it to the election that you asked about. All right. If you look at the, at the rank and file of most of the prophets who were prophesying during this last election cycle, I know a lot of them. And, and I, I can say with, with a straight face, and uh, you know, if I had a Bible, I don't have one here right now. Well, I have one in my computer, so I'll put one's on my computer. But the digital Bible suffice. Um, but, you know, and raise my hand. Many of them are really good-hearted people. They are mm-hmm. earnest in their faith. Yeah. They love the Lord. But if you look at this group as a whole, they have a very discernible uh, tendency towards being staunch Republicans. Mm-hmm. They do. Now, at the moment, I don't want to talk about politics in the sense of Democrat-Republican. Right. I just say it's, it's, it's obviously there. Not all of them, by the way, but, but a, there's a strong tendency. It's probably more than 80% of them are that way. Right. Okay, so <clears throat> do you think that if you are a staunch Republican and you're a prophet and you happen to have a president in office who, frankly, was pretty much on side for the church, far more than any president in recent memory, and you are looking at some of the things that have been articulated by the other side, the Democratic side, at various points mm. that seem to be opposed to all that you believe in. Mm-hmm. And then you, you see it in the Bible. I mean, you're, you see these people taking positions that are contrary to biblical revelation. Mm. Do you think that maybe your own fears, that's an emotion, mm-hmm. your own predilection for republicanism, your own staunch belief in what the written word of God says could color or bend your ability to hear the Lord clearly, assuming you're hearing him at all, Hmm. 
some might not have been getting any words. But it could bend you in such a way that you might not actually articulate the mind of the Lord. You would be prophesying vain imaginations, just as the prophets of Jeremiah's day. In that case, it was all about, well, we don't want to be killed by the Babylonians. We don't want to go into exile. We don't want to see our wives and children enslaved and raped. Right. We don't want to see that. Right. That would be a prevailing bias. And yet Jeremiah was the only one who had the spiritual neutrality, and we would say courage and strength of will to say, it's going to happen. Don't bother. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord says, don't bother even praying to me for this city. I won't even listen to your prayers, Jeremiah. Hmm. And he says, did you see what I did to Shiloh when I allowed my ark to be taken into captivity by the Philistines, that I turned my face away and destroyed Shiloh because they abandoned my ways? And then he says, do you think I will treat this temple any differently than I did my tabernacle? It will not be. Hmm. And so Jeremiah could hear that because of that spiritual neutrality and that courage and that focus on what is the will of God in this, Hmm. even if it's not what I like. And I think a lot of the modern prophets that you've been watching on YouTube, and I've seen them too, um, I think a lot of them allowed their own fears of what a democratic administration might look like, their own, uh, you know, their own dislike of a lot of the policies that are you know, in place, things that have been said. All of this began to swirl around, and with it, they were pushed off of neutrality and became bent and prophesied amiss. I think that's a really now, the good other night, way I was of having, putting it. I was having dinner with one of the most prominent of these very visible prophets. And we were talking about the election. And this individual said to me, I never had a word from the Lord about this election. And I said, I didn't have one either. Hmm. And this individual said to me, therefore, I didn't give any word from the Lord. And I said, and I didn't either. Hmm. And I had a lot of people contacting me saying, do you have a word from the Lord? And this individual also had many people saying, do you have a word from the Lord? So because neither of us had a word from the Lord, we didn't presume to speak for the Lord. We just held our silence. Hmm. I think that's the way you explained it, I think is really good for people who maybe are kind of riled up about this to be able to kind of let the emotion die down a little bit and just hear that. Yes, we all, and we all have our biases. I mean, it's not fair for us to look at people like that and go, well, they're just biased. And then me not look at myself and say, well, I'm not biased. I mean, that's just not, it's not fair. And I like also, and this is a good reminder for me as well that, that these are human beings made in the image of God. You know, like, yes, like maybe these people are a little, are a little biased right now and that, that's really swayed what they've said is coming from God, but they're still made in his image and they're still worthy of love and, you know, and, and redemption. But I, I do agree with what you're saying. I, I think it's a very apt um, synopsis of, you know, this idea of the spiritual neut- uh, neutrality and then how ultimately in this case, it seems like that really wasn't practice. But at the same time, like you said, and this is not about getting into politics. My personal um, bent is more liberal now than it used to be. I was raised very conservative. So I, it's made what you've said has made me think about myself and making sure that I, <laughs> you know, the next time I claim to speak, you know, like, uh, you know, um, accurately from the Bible, that I'm not letting my political biases influence whatever it is that, 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 that the text is trying to say. So I think you put it into really good words. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, I, try to be, I try to be beholden only to the Lord and mm. to speak for him. But I am an academic, and I don't think that we need to throw out good reason and, you know, reasonableness yes. uh, with that. 
Well, Ken, I mean, listen, obviously it's clear these topics are huge. We can be here all day, but we definitely are out of time. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for coming on. I mean, even though we kind of just touched the surface on some of these topics, I hope that all of our listeners, no matter what their, their bent or their perspective or background is, at least gives this some real room in their mind for pondering and at least researching. Do you have any good, um, you know, um, first steps if someone wants to go deeper in, in this in this sect, you know, in, in this idea of, of, of Christian thought, do you have a website you want to plug? Any books? Go for it. Yeah, I have a website. It's orbisministries.org. We have a lot of resources available there on a wide range of topics, the miraculous healing, um, prophecy, all of these things that we've been discussing. And uh, they're designed both to build faith, but also to train people to function in these dimensions uh, as Christian believers. Um, I also have a school which people could be interested in if they want to learn more and go even deeper. Uh, the school has a separate website, although you can find it through my main website. Mm. The separate website for the school is Orbis SM for School of Ministry, orbissm.com, .com, not .org. And, uh, and you can go there. You can watch some free uh, content, free classes. And then if you like what you see, you, know, you can sign up and get involved with what we're doing through the school. So those would be the best ways. I do have a book coming out next year called The Modern Day Diary of Science and Wonders. So you want to watch for that. Great. And, um, and I'm also writing a book. I actually have a 600-page manuscript, but it needs to go on a diet. Um, <laughs> that, that book is called An Integrated Guide to Healing and Deliverance. That will probably not come out until 2022. Awesome. Ken, truly amazing having you on the show. Thank you for the time and thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. And if you want to talk about any of these issues more, let's do another show sometime. <laughs> I'm all about it. Thank you. All right. Bless you. All right, guys. That was maybe one of my longest interviews ever. Um, hour and 10 minutes, I think that one clocks in at. Honestly, I, I don't know if I have my thoughts all together because for me, this kind of interview was very interesting. I've never met a guy like Ken because Ken clearly has the academic knowledge and like church history knowledge that a lot of scholars have. In fact, in fact, I think he's getting his doctorate, but he also is very charismatic in his theology and believes like very much and has, as you guys heard on the interview, has stories of like real supernatural things happening. So Jordan and Rob, what are you guys making of this interview with, with Ken? I think we should spend at least another hour dissecting <laughs> and just giving, giving like our own thoughts Perfect. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jordan, you go first. <laughs> I well, I thought. I mean, very much the same as you, Tim. I felt like he. It was refreshing t to hear those sort of more charismatic subject matters talked about in a way that's that is intellect intellectual. Yes. Um, and I mean, I don't. I feel like. For me, I'm not personally well-versed or have studied enough of those um, subjects to agree or disagree on the finer points of everything. Um, but I guess just like being in the church and being in Christian culture, um, it was good to hear like a very educated uh, take on all of that. Um, and I guess particularly the, the, when he was talking about healing um, and sort of some of the specifics of that, because that's something that, you know, I've been around, whether it's at, you know, 
stuff at IHOP in Kansas City or, um, you know, Assemblies of God stuff. Um, and it was cool to kind of hear that take on that whole culture. Um, and then the other part I thought was really good was his response to your question about the prophecy stuff. I thought he broke that down really well and gave like a really good, a really good wording to kind of, I mean, I feel like what I had kind of been thinking about the whole political prophecy is that so much of that has personal opinions and preferences, preferences like influencing what these guys are saying. <laughs> and it was cool to hear somebody who's kind of like in that world um, sort of admit that and also kind of like call that out among with those other people that are sort of his peers. Um, so yeah, I thought it was good. Yes. And okay. So for our audience, we are recording this in real time. So this is the night before this episode goes live and this interview was recorded maybe almost six weeks ago now. Sorry, Ken, <laughs> for the delay on this, but our schedule was so busy. So obviously, um, this was before the insurrection happened. This was before yeah. a lot of things happened. And something that I think is interesting is that so Jeremiah Johnson, who is one of these prophets, um, actually apologized for getting the, the prophecy wrong and then went on to receive numerous death threats to him and his family because of that. It was also called like a coward from evangelical Christian yes, kind of people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like he's betraying the Holy spirit. So I'm glad that Ken said what he said, because clearly we have a problem where um, this, I think the term is um, independent network of charismatics. That, that that's the term I'm hearing more and more. And that's kind of like the network that a lot of these self-proclaimed prophets kind of swim in, including, including Bethel, Jeremiah Johnson, and, and way more. Um, but they have really partnered with Trump and have really intertwined Trump politics with prophecy. And so I appreciated what Jeremiah Johnson said, and I think the response that he got was probably even telling to him that, that unfortunately, you guys have kind of opened up Pandora's box, and it's going to be very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. And as you can see, Jeremiah, you're getting death threats. <laughs> so people take this, you know, very literally. So I, mm -hmm. I was happy to hear as well, Ken kind of speak um, openly and honestly about that issue, because it really I think that's going to be a big problem for a lot of people now or a lot of these leaders in that movement, because their their followers are just unhinged in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this all goes as Trump is not so much a factor anymore and becomes less and less, I think. Hopefully. Well, he's, I think he, <laughs> my guess, especially now, again, this is real time. So they, um, he was not, there was no charges for him being impeached, right? So he Correct. was impeached a second time. Yeah. The Senate acquitted him. And one of the big consequences if he got convicted would have been that, that he couldn't serve an office again, which is honestly, mm -hmm. I was really hoping for that. Um, but I think he has a very loyal base and will definitely be coming back around. And this is not the yeah. last time we're going to hear a prophet's Trump in my view. Roberto. Yeah, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Speak. <laughs> um, the so one thing I I've been thinking even after listening to it, going back through it. One thing that I I I'm kind of going through my own mind too on the same issue 
is how much weight we put on the English translation of what the apostles wrote or what um, was recorded in Acts. So the English translation is spiritual gifts. I, I wonder how much of that translation of the word charisma or spirit, when the apostle Paul was really talking about now concerning the spirituals and then goes on. I wonder how much of our own theology and my own theology is impacted by seeing them as spiritual gifts instead of, for lack of better wording, manifestations of the spirit, right? So we're so concentrated on, oh, what's my spiritual gift? Or what did the spirit give me? Or um, how is the spirit using me in X, Y, or Z? Instead of being fully controlled by the spirit and letting him use me in any way that he sees fit almost thing. So we, we have in our mind, oh, I want the gift of prophecy. Oh, I want the gift of tongues. I want the gift of X, Y, Z, preaching, teaching, fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. I wonder if our, our obsession, it's almost, it's almost synonymous with the will of God in our lives, right? So we're obsessed with, is, am I marrying the right girl? Am I taking the right job? Is this the will of God in my life? And it's almost like those two things have become an obsession in the Christian life. And so I did appreciate this interview gave me another framework to look at the things in and, you know, compare and contrast. That's what this podcast is all about, right? It's bringing in different perspectives so that you can better analyze your own self, your own views, and then analyze all of the views when it comes to scripture. And so I, I did appreciate that at least. I prefer to only have my views reinforced (laughs) rather than challenged. I I think that's what we were talking about with Trump. That's (laughs) yes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, certainly good thoughts, guys. And I appreciate you making time to have a little bit of reflection on this one. You know, it was a long interview, so I don't think we need to belabor the point, but uh, definitely gave me me a lot to think about. And I Ken for me was a breath of fresh air in that part of Christian thought. I'll put it that way. Um, Oftentimes, I feel like, you know, um, people in that realm rely heavily on only emotion or on really bad interpretation or no interpretation. Uh, And Ken obviously knows his stuff and can defend his points, um, whether someone agrees or not. So I appreciate Ken making time and and being open to my my questions um, and kind of digging further. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in on this episode. As always, you can follow us at CTJ Podcast on Instagram please leave us a review on iTunes. It would be a huge help. And we will talk to you guys next time. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology in Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.